You are listening to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, with your host, Randy Sutton. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, 34-year police veteran, author of A Cop's Life, and national director of The Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. On this show, we talk about all things law enforcement, and we got a phenomenal guest waiting for us in the interview room, but before we get to him, let's take a walk into the briefing room where I'm going to give you my view from the blue. I wrote an op-ed. I do this occasionally when there is a particularly significant issue that I really want to uh, sit down and gather my thoughts about. And this is a really significant issue. It's about what's happening in New York City. I'm calling this the death knell of effective policing in New York. As violent crime tears through what was once considered the safest major city in America, the New York City Council has declared war on its police, and through misguided legislation born of political considerations, driven by radical agendas propagated by groups like Black Lives Matter, it has sounded the death knell for effective policing. New York City recorded more shootings from May 2020 through mid-September than in all of 2019. A 97% jump in shootings and a nearly 45% surge in murders, along with similar increases of robberies, aggravated assault, and sexual violence has turned New York into a battlefield littered with the blood of innocence. But instead of showing compassion for the victims and a determination to make the citizens safer, the mayor, city council, and other elected officials have revealed at best their ignorance of the issues and more likely their acceptance of this new norm. In fact, their actions indicate they're actually complicit in aiding criminality by effectively legislating protections for criminals while destroying the effective policing that for decades dramatically reduced violent crime and allowed New York City to flourish. I am, of course, speaking of the New York City Council's vote to, quote, end qualified immunity and seven other measures to reform NYPD, unquote. That's taken from the headline. Watching the gleeful celebrations of their, quote, victory, unquote, posted by New York City Council members and their lackeys in the media as they pontificated about the evils of law enforcement and the need to control and, quote, reform the police, saddened me as a 34-year law enforcement veteran. I remember the bad old days of New York when even I, as an armed police officer, avoided coming into the city because of the rampant crime. The ignorance of their grasp on the reality of violent crime and the lack of empathy for its victims and their families as they embraced laws that they created to shield the murderers, rapists, gang members, and other violent punks was truly pathetic to behold. As one who has gazed into the hollowed eyes of someone whose life has been shattered by violent predators, it's difficult to comprehend the level of ignorance or the incredible devotion to the dogma of liberal theology that accompanies 
these who would discard their moral compass in the name of political agendas. But that is, in fact, the new reality of New York City, and the people of New York had best prepare themselves for the consequences of their own complacency to control those that they have elected. The ramifications of the, quote, reforms, unquote, included the end of qualified immunity, which is probably the most misunderstood doctrine in policing. It will cost lives, harm businesses, and disrupt communities. Why? Because by removing the simple protections of qualified immunity, police officers are at far greater risk for being personally liable for any frivolous lawsuit filed against them. You see what the city council wants you to believe is that qualified immunity protected the police from actions that violated people's civil rights. That's a lie, but they sold it as such. And now every officer faces financial ruin for simply doing their job. That's why you can expect your police to now do the very minimum of policing. For to do anything else now places they and their families in extreme financial and psychological jeopardy. The words of Sergeant Ed Mullen, president of the Sergeant's Benevolent Association City of New York Police, to the officers of the NYPD should send a chill down the backs of every New Yorker. He said this, In light of the repeal of qualified immunity, you are strongly cautioned against taking any police action which could lead to physical engagement with any person. Also, you are strongly cautioned against any search of a car, residence, or person. You are subjecting you and your family to potential civil liability and monetary damages." Unquote. Black Lives Matter and other radical, quote, social justice groups have called for the most radical changes against the criminal justice system of the United States, including abolishing the police. Well, the city of the city council of New York has just is just about as radical as they are, and the people of New York will now pay the price. And that, my friends, is my view from the blue. I want to tell you about an organization that I'm going to ask you to support. It's called The Wounded Blue, and you can see it at thewoundedblue.org. They are the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. Now, by uh, I have to tell you the truth, and that is that I am the founder of that organization and the national director. What do they do? They provide peer support for injured and disabled officers all over the United States. They have a team of dedicated police officers, all who have been shot or stabbed or beaten or run over or faced psychological trauma, and they know exactly what these men and women are going through today. It's free, of course, because this is a national nonprofit charitable organization. They don't take any fees. Nobody makes any money on this deal. This is just about helping those men and women who have sacrificed so much for their communities and their country. Check it out at thewoundedblue.org. Your support is, is really needed. These men and women uh, have been abused in ways you can't even imagine. In fact, if you got a moment, go to Amazon.com and look at our documentary film called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. You will be shocked. Check it out, thewoundedblue.org, and support these men and women. Thank you. Everybody is shopping online now, right? Everybody is is going and getting their wares because it's convenient, it's easier. 
But here's the problem. I don't like giving my money to companies that simply don't go along with the values that I believe are important. I value patriotism. I value love of country. I value our police. I value our army and our navy and our military. I believe that these are really important values. And unfortunately, a lot of the big players in online shopping, they don't. They Instead, they, they promote a bunch of, of, of activists that, that truly do not even like our country. I don't like it. So... I, but, you know, what else are you going to do? There's pretty much just been one game in town. Well, that's changing right now. That's changing because now there is ShopToTheRight.com. Now, ShopToTheRight.com is a new endeavor, but it is it is gaining traction. For shopping online and putting your, your wares online, if you are a business, and and looking for customers that care about the country, that care about patriotism, care about values that the most of us uh, do share. And, and, and it really comes down to this. Do you want to give your money to companies that promote organizations that actually sometimes even call for the overthrow of our nation? Not me. I don't want to. Well, I never had much of a choice, but now we do. ShopToTheRight.com. You've got to check it out. Whether you are shopping or you are selling. In your company. Check it out. Shoptotheright.com. Tell them Randy sent you. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Fighting every day against the cancel culture that wants to silence and erase us. Five years on the air, and we will not be silenced. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. I have a special guest with me today in uh, the interview room here at the Voice of American Law Enforcement. His name is Rick Snyder. Rick is a is the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police President for Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department. And we're here to talk about a report that came out. And I'm going to read, I'm going to read for the audience what this what this uh, headline was. Independent review faults IMPD 
for May 2020 protest response suggest police tactics may have escalated tensions. And I'm going to just read the first paragraph. A three-member commission appointed by Indianapolis Mayor Joe Hogsett to review the incidents and police response surrounding last spring's riots in downtown faulted IMPD for a lack of training and preparation for the potential of protests getting out of hand in the wake of the George Floyd killing in Minneapolis and the fatal officer-involved shooting of Dre's John Reed in Indianapolis. And, and the, next, the next paragraph I, I got to read because this is going to be part of our conversation. The 44-page report also faults IMPD for, I'm, gonna, I'm, going to, I'm going to quote this, for not expressing enough empathy with the protesters and responding with tactics that seem to exacerbate the crowd's anxiety that led to violence, unquote. Rick, thank you for coming on to the Voice of American Law Enforcement. There's a lot to talk about about this about this report, quote unquote. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, let's talk about what took place that during those protests, and then how what your feelings are for, about this report and how the 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 blame somehow is getting all thrown on on the police officers. Yeah, what. What's very clear when uh, anyone reviews this report is that it, without a doubt, uh, was constructed in a way to provide political cover for our politicians in Indianapolis. Uh, the uh, mayor of the city appointed a three-person commission. Uh, it's important to know, I'm always real big on saying this, context before content, right? It's very important to know that at the time that this commission was appointed by the mayor was at a time when he was, was receiving significant questions and a lot of concern being raised throughout the city because of the outcomes that occurred from these riots. And quite frankly, what many believed was a lack of action uh, and, and leadership in a lot of ways on his part and that of his administration. Here were the outcomes. We had two full days of riots uh, uh, within a 48 hour period. Our downtown Indianapolis, which is, if you've ever been here, it's the crown jewel of the city. It's a wonderful uh, convention and tourism city and very accessible, and uh, we're always proud to extend a lot of Hoosier hospitality. We host major events, uh, sometimes multiple ones at the same time on the same day throughout the city of Indianapolis. Everybody's familiar with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, usually over 400,000 to 500,000 fans at that one event, being the Indianapolis 500, but uh, we're the sports capital of the world, and he here's the deal. We're used to handling large events, large groups of people, but as a result of orders given by politicians, our law enforcement officers were ordered to stand down during the protests that were uh, uh, ramping up in the summer of 2020. As a result of that, the subject matter experts, our officers who know how to handle these events, were placed into a compromised posture, and then the peaceful protests had folks within them that started to instigate violence and it quickly devolved into a full-scale riot. This was the outcome. We had over $8 million of damage. We had 100 businesses damaged or destroyed. We had four people shot during this time frame, two of which lost their lives. Our officers were under constant gunfire for multiple hours at a time. They were being attacked and surrounded, bottles, frozen bottles thrown at them, which we all know that's as hard as a brick, bricks and rocks and other things being thrown at them. And uh, they actually acted 
in a remarkable fashion with remarkable restraint and was able to take our city back from those who were committing criminal violence. And then we have this report that was generated nine months later that actually pointed the finger at the very people who saved our city, even in spite of the politicians. That two days of violence, let's go back in, in history for just a moment. The area that was, that was uh, attacked and, and, and the downtown area that, as you described, is the crown jewel. The redevelopment of your city that, that took place really created this environment down there that, was, um, that is truly amazing. I mean, the downtown area wasn't always so great. And then y- your, your city put untold millions of dollars into creating the new downtown with the, yeah, with the idea to bring in businesses, bring in tourism. And they were very effective at it, were they not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's, it is what we are known for. Uh, uh, we hosted the NFL Super Bowl in 2012, and most people would tell you it was probably the best Super Bowl experience they've ever had. We host the NFL Combine every single year hundreds of events throughout the year. Like I said, many, many times, large scale events that many cities couldn't handle one of them. We might have two or three going on at the same time. The point being that our law enforcement officers are pros at this. This is what we do. Um, I point this out. This report was very critical of what we call our emergency response group and our mobile field force. Well, our emergency response group are 200 officers that are specially trained for crowd management. So without riot gear and all those other things, by their presence, their special training and techniques, they are utilized and trained to be able to handle situations, de-escalate anything before it devolves into something worse, and uh, keep the peace. Within that, if it does go to a crowd control uh, setting where it is a riotous situation, those officers, uh, plus uh, uh, two to 300 additional officers who are trained in what's called mobile field force, then can be activated and quickly resolve the situation. That was the ingredients that we had the nights of these riots. Listen, we had protests, as you pointed out, from another incident prior to the George Floyd <clears throat> protests. We, we had multiple other opportunities where protests were occurring and they were handled in a very peaceable fashion with that emergency response group participating. Our whole point was this, as professional law enforcement officers, and from your experience, I know you fully agree, every officer does, we're sworn to uphold the Constitution. We're not sworn to uphold a politician. We come in to say, listen, we're going to protect those who are going to exercise their constitutional rights, protest and make their voices heard, even if they're protesting us as the police. We're going to protect them, risk our lives, and make sure that they keep safe so that they can do that. However, we have to be clear, if and when it turns to an all unlawful assembly due to violent actions, uh, folks within the group uh, presenting weaponry and assaulting our officers or innocent civilians, including the very protesters in the group, uh, we have to change gears, utilize different tactics to ensure good, strong intervention that protects the lives of the protesters and the officers alike. Your department has been, has been very effective in the past in dealing with large scale situations. 
you have everything in place. You have, you have your, your policies, you have the properly equipped, the properly trained officers, everything, all the pieces were in place to deal with the George Floyd riots. But what happened that this thing turned into what it turned into? Well, think about it. Uh, the, the Department of Homeland Security is the only one who's authorized to, te- to do the training for mobile field force, uh, crowd control training, all those things. They do the training. Many major cities and smaller towns will send officers to their training facilities in Alabama, or the Department of Homeland Security will send their trainers to the, uh, to the locale to train those officers. There's very few. Uh, I've been told maybe one or two, uh, two or three, uh, that are allowed to actually, agencies that are allowed to do the training themselves. Indianapolis is one of those. That tells you that our officers are some of the best trained specifically on these issues in the United States of America. Yet this report that was generated nine months after the fact, once time had cleared and, and, and uh, everybody's uh, perception started turning to other things, this report was issued and this is what they claimed. They claimed that our officers were unprepared, undertrained, and we lacked communication. Nothing could be further from the truth. And the point that I have made is there is, a, there, there is some factual basis in that in this perspective. There were folks who were unprepared, undertrained, and lacking communication. That was the politicians, not the police. In a, in a riotous situation, incident command is the most important factor in dealing with uh, a, a situation that is ever evolving and and turns into violence. In most jurisdictions, well, at least until the recent societal changes, law enforcement has been placed in control. The orders come from the chief. The chief tells the incident commander what to do, how to handle it. And then the incident commander is in charge. Who's pulling the strings here? But the leadership of your department or the leadership of the city? Well, well, it's even better than that. Uh, what we've been able to learn uh, since those events is that uh, the first day of the protest, which was a Friday, really the protest began on our monument circle at about 3 p.m. Peaceful protest. Our emergency response group was on the scene. Uh, quite frankly, they listen, this will put it in perspective since this, those May riots, this same emergency response group has handled 150 plus more protests in our city without incident. So the question becomes is what was the difference? The difference was is that on this day, politicians started engaging in the decision-making and policing decisions. We know for a fact that we had a deputy mayor of the city of Indianapolis and a chief of staff for the mayor actively involved on the ground in the middle of the protest. We had political officials engaging within the protest and then providing direction to the officers who were trying to manage the crowd and keep everyone safe. Is, that, is, that, document- like, is that called the foxes in the hen house? Well, whatever the case may be, I, I, any uh, uh, national uh, incident management system training would tell you that is inappropriate. And you have to pick one or the other. If you're going to engage in the actual incident, 
you don't play a role of making decisions about how to manage that. And uh, we all know that, but I think the general public sometimes forgets this, but it's vitally important that we have clear delineations and directions and chain of commands for this very purpose. What we know, and it's documented in the radio traffic recordings uh, and in transcripts of that in our computer-aided dispatch system uh, that, that tracks what's going on on these incidents, is that when this first protest began at 3 p.m., within the first 15 minutes, our officers had identified sticks, shields, frozen bottles, and other weaponry within the crowd. Relatively shortly after that, one of our officers were assaulted. It was at that time when, when, again, our officers are trained, we don't then just start arresting everybody in the crowd. We single that perpetrator out. We move in, remove them from the scenario, from the scene, so that the crowd stays protected. They can continue with exercising their rights, and the person who has violated the law can be held accountable. But when our officers moved in to take action, the crowd started to encircle them and started to threaten and, and, and uh, attack them. That was at 3, 3 to 3.30 in the afternoon. This then began to devolve because it's documented that our officers were ordered to stand down, to back up, and to give up ground. At one point in time when we had this crowd um, uh, contained uh, within Monument Circle, where they were being kept safe and others being kept safe, we were ordered to stand down, release the uh, perimeter of the circle, to allow the protesters to go where they wanted to go. And we literally have it documented that our officers were ordered to give up our monument circle. That's I know of no other city where you hear that, to literally give up uh, the, the center, the marketplace of your community. But that is what happened here. Your, your chief is ostensibly in charge of your agency. What was your chief's reaction to this? Well, I think, you know, I think it's been made abundantly clear there, uh, there's consternation, disagreement within those chains of commands. Uh, we recognize that they have, uh, they have supervision as well. Uh, we have civilian oversight, which is a political structure that oversees the police department. I think most municipalities understand that. We agree with that. But there's, there's protocols in place that when an active incident is going down, it is that police leader who assumes the responsibility and the role of leading that. Where we get sideways is when politicians start to get their hands on that and start to interfere with that. And more times than not, again, they're unprepared, undertrained, and they lack communication in how to properly handle that. Therein lies the problem with this. Think about this. This started at 3 p.m. This report literally... Um, alleges, puts the blame at the feet of the officers and says that the officers antagonized the situation by wearing riot gear in the middle of a riot. Uh, they also note that uh, they had strong concerns that at one point in time in the middle of the riot, riot control agents were dispersed. Um, many in the public, especially those in, in um in organizations that want to limit the role of law enforcement within such uh, events, uh, uh, call, call the, the launching of those materials tear gas. It's important to, to realize we don't have tear gas. We don't use tear gas. These are riot control agents that are canisters that put out a pepper spray fog, if you will, 
within within the uh, within the areas that they're being launched. Listen, by the time we launched the first riot control agents, it was 10 p.m. on the first night. Remember, I told you this started at three. That means we took seven hours before that ever occurred. And prior to that occurring, we had shots being fired. We had businesses being destroyed and we had officers being assaulted. So it isn't though the riot control agents were launched and the riot gear was being worn. And that's what caused the riot to occur. It's the, it's the complete opposite. Our officers were simply responding to what was being presented to them. And at the same time, being placed in a compromised posture by being ordered to stand down, back up and give up ground. And then it just simply evolved and devolved into complete chaos. We are fortunate we didn't have a police officer killed. How many officers were injured during this, this debacle? Uh, several. We had um, uh, many that were injured. Uh, you know, I was talking to our officers recently, and this is the point that we have been making. This commission took nine months to formulate their report. They talked and interviewed about 50 witnesses, according to their report. They say that they reviewed multiple hours of network news media video and also multiple hours of social media video, all of which we know can be very skewed, uh, narrated and editorialized while that is occurring. That's fine. We want them to review all the facts and information that's out there. But in reviewing all the hours of that video, what we have subsequently learned is they never reviewed one minute of police radio traffic, the audio of that, and they've never reviewed one minute of 911 phone call recordings. Let me share this with you. This will give you perspective. During the 48 hours of these riots, our 911 call center received over 8,000 911 calls. Think about that. 8,000 calls in 48 hours. To put that in perspective, if you just took an average, it would be 167 911 calls an hour, and it would be three 911 calls every minute for 48 hours straight is the equivalent of what our 911 call takers were handling. Obviously, the peak number of those were occurring during the riot, the, the peak times of the riots. Here's what we know is on those calls. Business owners screaming for help, people calling in, begging for the police to come to them and save them. People asking where the police were. Why hasn't the National Guard been activated? Why are the police being pulled out and, and leaving the area? Here's the thing. Those tapes, the politicians refused to release. And that is why we have kept saying, play the tapes. Don't take our word for it. Play the tapes. And that's starting to get a lot of traction because most folks in the community see the destruction that occurred, the loss of life. We had two people lose their lives. And uh, what is it that we have to hide? It's nine months after the fact. Why can't we hear those tapes? The mayor of your city is the one that appointed this, quote, panel, unquote. What, do you know the backgrounds of the three people who were appointed? Do they have a history of an anti-law enforcement type of agenda? Actually, they have a very strong, uh, reputable history. One is a, a former deputy um, United States attorney general and a U.S. attorney in our area at one time. Uh, another one is a, a former state Supreme Court justice, a retired state Supreme Court justice. And then the third is a uh, universe, local university president. That is why we are so puzzled with that background. Who would do 
50 witness interviews, review all the video evidence, and then never, never review the police evidence that is there. We're also told that when the police witnesses were, police witness statements were included in this report, that it is not a fair and accurate representation of what occurred. And it's not a fair and accurate representation of the statements that were given. We have had some police witnesses say, I know this section is referring to what I talked about. It's not only what I said, it's the opposite of what I said. So here again, we say the same thing. Perhaps it was a misunderstanding, but this can easily be resolved. Let's get to the facts because facts matter. Play the tapes, play the tapes of those interviews and let us hear what was actually said. Um, because uh, it's very concerning to our officers that it, uh, it gives this misleading uh, perception of what occurred. And here again, points the finger back at the very ones who were trying to stand the line and protect our city and save lives. Tell me about the morale of your agency at this point. Well, we actually took a climate survey uh, back last year and uh, following these events. And this is what our survey showed. It showed that uh, uh, about 90% of our respondents uh, uh, made clear that they were suffering from extremely low morale. Uh, about 97% of our respondents did not feel that they were supported uh, by the political leadership within the community. Uh, you, you know well, uh, most anyone within public safety, military, those kinds of service entities know all too well that morale is the key that will make or break you. Now, that was after all of this, but here's the key point and what it shows us is that officers knew back then that they had been placed in a compromised position. We had officers, Randy, that were in the middle of the riot, taking a moment to call their spouses and loved ones to tell them that they loved them and they did not believe they were coming home that night. Wow. People don't get this. We saw what happened across the country. The great untold story in Indianapolis is that our officers were up against live gunfire for multiple hours on end. I've spoken to officers that said, I've been shot at before. I've never been shot at that many times. Uh, the rounds were hitting around me so close I could hear the bullets whizzing past my head and striking the ground. Um, and they truly believed they were going to die in this. Uh, and then once they survived day one, they came back and they did it again. And then those are the people that you say are the problem. Those are the people we point fingers at. No, sir. We will not allow this to stand. Facts matter. We want the truth to come out. If we're wrong, we'll stand by that. But we can't have a misleading report historically documenting that and laying the blame at the feet of the very officers uh, who are risking their lives like they were. Is there any movement afoot that will bring some type of legitimate investigatory body to re-look at this? Is there anything happening anywhere in the, in the government that will countermand, if you will, or counteract this, this current investigation that was uh, so completely one-sided? Is anybody in, in power looking at saying, hey, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. We need to really get to the bottom of it. 
Well, those are the big questions that are now starting to be asked, right? Uh, hashtag play the tapes has really started gaining traction within the local community. Uh, we've had uh, the number one uh, talk radio station in the city of Indianapolis spend a lot of time focusing on this. We've also had some of our local media organizations starting to actually report on this and others are still sitting on their hands and remaining silent about it. Uh, but the, the general public, they understand it. Listen, they got it back nine months ago when it all occurred. When business owners had, I mean, their businesses destroyed, burned down. Uh, listen, during the riots, it was a very concerted effort that was very apparent. And when you listen to the tapes, look at the transcripts, you can see it. One of the first things that was done is that throughout the city, all of the banks were hit one after the other. They attacked the banks first. They shattered the windows. They stole computers from within them and they set them on fire. Then they started moving to the other businesses and stripping those. Then they started moving to the vehicles and people on the street and stripping those, attacking them. Armed robberies in progress. And remember what I said, four people were shot in this, two of which lost their lives. And so it was a very uh, concerted effort that took place. Um, again, and I want to be crystal clear on this. These are individuals or small subset groups within the overall crowd, right? So let, let me let, let me just ask you right now. I mean, to me, this sounds like what we have seen in various other, in Portland and in Seattle, where there is a legitimate organized group within these protesters that are calling the shots as far as tactics that are being employed. That's that's that shows organized an an organized entity. Is that what you're what you saw here? Well, here's the interesting thing. When you read this review commission's report, they specifically say they found no organized effort was involved in these riots. It doesn't match up, man. It just doesn't match up. Uh, are you telling me that in a crowd of, of thousands of people? they suddenly independently in different parts of the city all decide at the same time to attack banks first, then go to a, a subset of businesses next, then go to governmental buildings next, all at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's not possible. No, it's not. It's not possible. So how many arrests were made during this mess? Uh, some of the documentation that we've seen is that uh, we one report showed uh, over 300 charges were filed. Uh, we had at one point in time, the number was 129 arrests being made and our prosecutor dismissed 102 of those. <laughs> so very similar to Portland and very similar to Seattle. You have a prosecutor that doesn't want to prosecute. Well, what we know for a fact is that during the times of a riot, when we had um, unlawful assemblies declared, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and we have the tensions of social unrest occurring, uh, our prosecutor was letting them out as fast as we could put them in. You know, the, this, is, this is a depressing conversation, Rick, quite honestly. Um, I mean, what, what we're seeing around the country coincides with your experiences, the lack of leadership from the political level, the, uh, the, the trying to blame the police for every problem that exists. And it's, it's happening once again with you, with your, with your organization, with your department. 
And the only one that's telling the truth is the fraternal order of police and, and the cops themselves. I mean, you got to feel pretty isolated right now. Well, we do in a, in a sense that what's nice for our officers to see is that now our residents and our business owners are, are starting to speak out as well. Think about this, Randy, over a hundred businesses damaged or destroyed business owners were on television throughout the riots in the aftermath, demanding answers from our political leadership as to why there was no more help given. Here's the great secret in all of this. While our officers were fighting for their lives, trying to hold the line, what our politicians knew is that our governor had made over 200 state Indiana state troopers available as reinforcements. They were as close as a phone call away and they would have responded and had over 250 National Guard on standby as well to assist us. And our politicians never made the call. And so our business owners were saying, my business is being destroyed here. And I can see that you have this stuff over in reserve and you won't allow them to come in to help protect me in my business. And here's what's interesting. This nine month review commission that did over 50 witness interviews, hours of video review, didn't review the police tapes, didn't review the 911 calls, and they didn't interview one business owner. You know, they, now, they, explain this, that to yeah, me. Well, yeah, it's, it's very clear that that this was that that this is a, this report is meaningless, useless. It's just a it's just a subterfuge to cover up for the incompetence. Yes. And I want to go back to your earlier question because I, I failed to answer it. This, this this issue of is there any discussion of getting a, a legitimate review done? There's a lot of discussion that's now occurring about that, and a lot of good people are starting to ask that question. And really, the ultimate question becomes: Well, if so, who should do it? I mean, we've already demonstrated it's not going to occur at the local level, so who should be doing it? I think as our uh, business community and our residents engage more in that process. Um, we can start to find what avenues may be available to us. I mean, the one thing that we are we stand firm on as officers is let's get to the bottom of it. Perhaps there's things that we can all learn from this because the greatest thing we have to take away is we can never allow this to happen again. You know, we're running out of time, but I just want to talk about accountability. We are yeah. constantly hearing the word accountability as it relates to law enforcement. That is the buzzword bingo of the, the political left and, and many of the politicians who have their own personal agendas. The question, of course, here is to the, to the people, don't you want to have accountability from your political leadership as well as law enforcement? And yet, I don't think we're I don't think we're even at the at the starting gate for developing accountability towards your political environment. Do you? Well, no. I mean, you know, you let the record reflect that in Indianapolis, it was the Fraternal Order of Police who first called for body worn cameras for our officers. It wasn't protest groups. It wasn't a politician trying to make a point. It was the police who said. We want good accountability because it's a two-way street, not just for the officers, but the people we're interacting with. They're also ev excellent evidence collection tools. And uh, they, can, they can provide another perspective as to what occurred. Um, we recognize that if 
uh, prosecutor won't even file charges if you do interviews as a detective and don't have a recording of that interview to cross-reference and validate what the officer is reporting. We're now in a day and an age where beyond the body-worn camera, prosecutors are wanting an additional independent witness, and they won't just take the officer's word for it. Yet when it comes to the accountability for the politicians, and we know they have this evidence available, they keep it concealed and won't play it. So it's a very dangerous ground for us to be on. Uh, I think it's very fair and forthright to demand that we have good transparency involved. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a clear example of putting politics over people. Rick, thank you for taking the time to join me here on uh, the Voice of American Law Enforcement. Very enlightening conversation. I, I admire your leadership in this role. I know how frustrating it is. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is that somebody's got to lead and it's uh, it, and it, it is falling on your shoulders right now as as the organization that is protecting those police officers, the Fraternal Order of Police. Rick Snyder, thank you so much for joining me here at The Voice of American Law Enforcement. Thanks for having us. I want you to mark off on your calendars. An amazing event. I talked to you about it before. We had a couple false starts because of the COVID insanity. But the Brothers in Blue Bash is happening. It is happening October 30th here in Las Vegas at the amazing Ahern Hotel. Now, let me tell you a little bit about it. The Brothers in Blue Bash is the largest celebration of law enforcement, unity, and pride in America. This is going to be a memorable night. It's going to have awards for uh, some amazing people. It's going to have music. It's going to have food. It's going to have entertainment. It's going to be a, it's going to be a night to remember. And it is all going to benefit the Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Officers. So this is going to be, uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff happening. There's going to be a live auction. There's going to be a silent auction. There's going to be raffles. There's going to be some great guns getting raffled off. And um, and we're going to have a hell of a lot of fun at the Ahern Hotel. Now, how do you get your tickets? Let's, the tickets are cheap, 95 bucks a person. Uh, you can get a table for, I think it's $9.50. Uh, go, to, go to Facebook, The Brothers in Blue Bash, and reserve your tables now. It's already half sold out. So you want to get your tables you want to be there. Uh, the Ahern Hotel is given a special discount rate. Uh, it's like 100 bucks a night. This is a phenomenal hotel. And you don't want to miss this. So go to the Brothers in Blue Bash on Facebook. Or go to the, the uh, website at thewoundedblue.org and get your tickets. And I will be there. I look forward to seeing you there. It's for cops. It's for former cops. It's for anybody who supports law enforcement. Be there. Largest celebration of law enforcement unity and pride in America. The Brothers in Blue Bash. See you then, October 30th. I want to tell you about a service that I think is absolutely critical if you're a law enforcement officer and also not just for you, but for your family as well. Because your personal information is being exposed on the internet and it's open for everyone to see. This was something was pointed out to me and it, it actually shocked me. It's dangerous because officers are being targeted all over the country. 
They're being doxxed. Protesters are showing up at their front door. Their accounts are being hacked. And you got to do what you can to protect yourself. There is a great website, officerprivacy.com. Officerprivacy.com can actually help. It's owned by a retired law enforcement officer, and they have literally helped thousands of cops all over the country. His team removes your information from websites that actually show your personal details. And who doesn't want that now, right, with what's going on? But you got to get ahead of all this, and you can't wait for something to happen and say, oh boy, I should have done something about it, because it's too late by then. So do this. Go to officerprivacy.com and sign up today. You'll feel better after you sign up for officerprivacy.com because you will have an extra layer of privacy and protection. I recommend it. It's a smart thing to do. Go to officerprivacy.com. Sign up and do it today. For all of my law enforcement, active and retired, great announcement. Something you, especially if you're working, whether you are a patrol officer or you're a chief, you want to listen to this because you want to sign up for this ASAP. The Wounded Blue, which is, of course, the organization that I founded, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers, is announcing right now, for the first time, the Law Enforcement Survival Summit that is being hosted by the Wounded Blue at the Ahern Hotel in Las Vegas, October 28, 29, and 30. This is the one training event that you want to attend because it's about everything that involves surviving a law enforcement career. It encompasses physical survival, tactics by two of the most incredible and experienced instructors, Dave and Betsy Smith, they together have uh, have probably saved more lives than than uh, any other duo in training history. Dr. Kevin Gilmartin, the author of Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, is going to be one of the presenters. Uh, Jason Schechterly, whose story of survival after being incredibly burned in a in a when his patrol car was struck. His story of survival is incredible. He's going to be one of the speakers. There are going to be amazing speakers, presenters, classes, and you don't want to miss this. We're only going to allow 300 in-person people, and that's in Las Vegas, October 28th through the 30th. And then the night of the 30th is the Brothers in Blue Bash. So go to thewoundedblue.org. That's thewoundedblue.org, and you want to register right now for this event because it's going to sell out quick and you do not want to miss it. It just may save your life. End of Watch with Randy Sutton. Every week on the Voice of American Law Enforcement here at Blue Lives Radio, we honor the men and women who have made the ultimate sacrifice and given their lives in the line of duty. This is a this has been a bad week for law enforcement. Um, the first officer that we're going to talk about is Trooper Chad Walker, Texas Department of Public Safety, Highway Patrol. Trooper Chad Walker succumbed to gunshot wounds sustained five days earlier when he was ambushed while stopping to assist what he believed was a disabled vehicle near Mexia, Texas. 
He was traveling on FM 2838 near U.S. Highway 84 when he observed a vehicle parked at the shoulder at about 7.45 p.m. As he pulled behind the vehicle, the driver exited and opened fire with a handgun shooting through the windshield of the patrol car before it even came to a full stop. Trooper Walker was struck in the head and abdomen. The driver fled into a wooded area and remained at large until committing suicide the following day. Trooper Walker was transported to a local hospital where he was determined he could not survive his wounds. He was kept on life support until March 31st when his organs were donated. Trooper Walker had served with the Texas Highway Patrol for six years, had 18 years of law enforcement experience, having previously served with the Grosbeck Police, Athens Police, Henderson County Sheriffs, and Limestone County Sheriffs. He is survived by his wife, 15-year-old son, twin 7-year-old daughters, and a two-month-old daughter. Trooper Chad Walker, Texas Department of Public Safety, Texas Highway Patrol, end of watch, March 31st, 2021. The next is Correction Officer Robert McFarland, Iowa Department of Corrections. Correctional Officer Robert McFarland and Nurse Lorena Schulte were assaulted and beaten to death by two inmates in the Anamosa State Penitentiary Infirmary during an attempted escape. The inmates had developed a ruse to gain access to the infirmary by claiming to be there as part of the prison repair program. Once inside, they attacked Officer McFarland and Nurse Schulte with hammers, inflicting fatal skull injuries on both. Another inmate inside the infirmary attempted to protect the officer and Nurse Schulte, but was also attacked and suffered a fractured skull. The two inmates then attempted to use a grinder to break through the exterior window and protective bars, but were unsuccessful. They took another nurse hostage for a short period of time before fleeing back into the prison where they were subdued. They had been serving lengthy sentences for robbery convictions. Both were subsequently charged with first-degree murder. Officer McFarland has served with the Iowa Department of Corrections for 13 years. Correctional Officer Robert McFarland, Iowa Department of Corrections, Iowa. End of watch, Tuesday, March 23, 2021. The next is Senior Master Trooper Todd A. Hanneken, Illinois State Police. Senior Master Trooper Todd Hanneken was killed in a single vehicle crash on Illinois 10 near County Road 600 in Bondville. His vehicle left the roadway before striking a utility pole and a tree at about 10.45 a.m. Trooper Hanneken is survived by his wife, two sons, parents, and brother. Senior Master Trooper Todd Hanneken, Illinois State Police, Illinois, end of watch, Thursday, March 25th, 2021. The next is Officer Corporal Kyle Jeffrey Davis, Washington County Sheriff's Office, Oklahoma. Corporal Kyle Davis died after being assaulted inside of the Washington County Correctional Facility while booking a prisoner. 16, excuse me, 17 subjects had been arrested as part of a large multi-agency narcotics investigation and were being booked into the jail. One of the men began to struggle with officers while being booked and struck Corporal Davis in the chest, causing him to suffer a ruptured aorta. He was transported to a local hospital where he passed away. Corporal Davis had served at the Washington County Sheriff's Office for 13 years. He is survived by his wife and two children. 
Corporal Kyle Jeffrey Davis, Washington County Sheriff's Office, Oklahoma, and a watch Thursday, March 25th, 2021. And the next is Trooper Joseph Gallagher, New York State Police. Trooper Joseph Gallagher succumbed to injuries sustained on December 18th, 2017, when he was struck by a vehicle. Trooper Gallagher was assisting a motorist on the westbound Long Island Expressway at the entrance ramp to Secaugus Parkway when he was struck by a passing motorist who was distracted by three texting conversations. Trooper Gallagher was seriously injured, died three years later from his injuries. The driver of the vehicle that struck the trooper was arrested, charged with third-degree assault with criminal negligence. He was sentenced to 30 days, time served, three years probation. Trooper Gallagher served the New York State Police for seven years, survived by his wife and two children. Trooper Joseph Gallagher, New York State Police, New York. End of watch, Friday, March 26, 2021. Each of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty, serving and protecting. May they rest in peace. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, here on the America Out Loud Network. I want to thank you for taking the time to spend your time with me and hear about all things that are affecting the American law enforcement officer. Once again, I'm going to remind you to support thewoundedblue.org. I love some hot coffee. Go to lawdogcoffee.com and uh, the Brothers in Blue Bash. Those are the the, uh, things I would love for you to take a look at and support and come to and join in because the men and women of American law enforcement need your support. Check it all out. Thanks again for taking the time to spend it with me here on America Out Loud on Blue Lives Radio. 